The Free For All Roundtable. Round one. Karima Sad is here, a Toronto lawyer and activist. Mark Tui, trusted advisor to business and political leaders. Matt Gurney, he is the co-founder of The Line, an online magazine. Teachers, actually it's not the teachers, but education workers, a logical place to start this morning. And as you folks have uh, heard through the day, Siobhan Morris uh, gave us the timeline. Started with previously unscheduled negotiations yesterday between CUPE, the union, and the government. Then the union said, that's it, we're going out, we're uh, going on strike on Friday. And the government said, oh, no, you're not. And the government turned around and said, we will, on Monday at 1 p.m., introduce legislation to, first of all, impose a contract, second of all, make it illegal for you to go on strike on Friday. Mark Tui, I'll start with you. Um, this, I mean, this is amped up in 24 hours, but it's also a pretty blunt instrument the government's wielding. Yeah, the government's uh, doing two things, uh, which probably, they're obviously, they're going to do together, but they're really two separate things. One, they're going to introduce legislation to not allow them to uh, to strike, to basically order them to stay at work. And secondly, they're going to impose the terms and conditions of a new contract through legislation, which is something that an employer can do without legislation. Uh, normally, we try, we threatened to do that in the city of Toronto back in 2011 uh, as part of the bargaining process. It worked. We ended up with an negotiated settlement that everybody was happy with. I think both sides in this case, uh, uh, John, have done a uniquely bad job at bargaining. Based only on the public statements of both the government and the union leader, Laura Walton, who I know is coming up on your show, yep. uh, the government has changed its position at least twice. So that's three different uh, offers. And uh, the union has done no negotiating by the sounds of it whatsoever, according to themselves. Uh, uh, they've come in with what was a ludicrously high request, and they're holding to it. So clearly, you know, they don't really understand the same rules of negotiation as everybody else on the planet, and the government didn't start early enough in terms of setting the agenda. They've allowed the union to drive the boat, and the boat is uh, heading over the falls. So at this point, I think the government had to act in terms of keeping kids in school. Okay, Kareem Asad, we're on a five-day timeline, and the worst-case scenario, I guess, would be that the work go on an illegal strike because they've already had their contract uh, imposed on them. Um, you know, I don't necessarily want to go to the nuclear formula right away, but this is a pretty ugly conflict. Yes, uh, and it, it is important, I think, for all workers who are part of unions to really keep a close eye on this because what the government is proposing to do is essentially trample over those charter rights. Um, and it, it's a very adverse relationship that the Ford government has had with labor in various sectors, particularly education, I think, but we've seen this in, in the healthcare sector as well. And the money appears to be there if we're thinking about those payouts that parents received. Um, you know, it, could that have been better spent when we look at the actual conditions of workers um, who have endured a real wage cut when we account for inflation and are facing financial hardships. Um, so I, I, I'm keeping an eye on this for sure. Yeah, and Matt Gurney, it's, it always plays pretty well when the government gets tough with a union and then it usually comes back to bite them in the butt. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it'll play unusually well this time, though. Um, you know, I, I don't rule out the possibility that the courts eventually look at this, and we've seen this happen before, and they go, no, that was inappropriate. It was it was not appropriate to use legislation and, and the power of government here, and, you know, we're, we're going to ding you on this one. We're either going to fine you or roll out retroactive uh, wage boosts. So I think the government could well regret it later, but I don't think it's going to have any regrets now. And I've been writing about this for a while, and you know, for some reason, I, I think the unions aren't listening to me. Uh, go figure. But what I've been trying to tell them for the last couple of months is whatever the merits of your argument are, whatever the particular <laughs> negotiating uh, beliefs you guys have, if you put millions of Ontario kids back out of school after the last three years of constant school disruptions, the public is just not going to be on your side. And absolutely nothing I have seen in recent weeks has changed my mind about this. Some of my most comfortably progressive uh, limousine liberal friends have been telling me it is that the, basically that they will riot if their kids miss one more day of school because someone isn't happy with the wage boost they're getting. I'm not saying that settles this uh, this issue on the merits of the issue, but I am saying if the union's counting on a groundswell of public support, I think they might be disappointed. Okay, so they're going to put down their gray poupon, get out of their limousines and riot. Yes, that's. I, I've been waiting to see this for years. Uh, it will be the funniest riot ever. But I will tell you this, a couple of times during COVID, wouldn't it have surprised me to see it happen? Uh, Kareem, I'll start with you as we move to the uh, inquiry into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act, because you covered the convoy protests. And you also kind of continue on a weekly basis to cover whatever aftermath there is of that movement. Uh, on Friday and again today, it's the former chief of police in Ottawa, Peter Slowly, who, by all reports, seems to have cried while testifying, which made me think of a league of their own kind of paraphrase. You know, there's no crying in policing. Uh, but, you know, he says he was, he, it's not that he's a paralyzed leader, it's that he wasn't getting the support from above and below that he needed in order to do what he was told to do. I'm inclined to accept that testimony as being accurate and honest. Um, you know, I, I think there were a lot of criticisms that he received continues to receive um but my observation on the ground in in seeing the actual rank and file uh, and and the ways that they dealt with the protesters uh, and now learning more about uh, what support he was not receiving from opp despite meetings etc um it, it, he, it, it, as far as it being a policing solution, um, I don't think that Ottawa police had the resources or the will um, to follow uh, follow through with ending this and nipping it in the bud when it could have been dealt with. Well, Mark Tui, a lot of people have said that they would prefer this inquiry just cut to the chase. Did the government need the powers or not need the powers? And yet Peter slowly testifying on Friday, and it'll be interesting to watch him again today, shed an awful lot of light into the police dysfunction and into the, the you know, the paralysis was kind of imposed on Ottawa Police Service. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I'm not sure... The average person might be seeing things that they haven't seen before from police, but, you know, I've worked with police agencies across this country and around the world for, for a couple of generations, well, not a couple of generations, a couple of decades. And uh, the dysfunction and the inability to work together is not surprising. This is par for the course. It is standard operating procedure. 
Peter slowly knew that because he was part of that system. The fact that, you know, the waters didn't part when he became chief and all of a sudden, you know, a clear path emerged ahead where everybody would help him shouldn't have shocked him. Uh, that said, you know, it wasn't just the police being dysfunctional. The Ottawa Police Services Board was clearly uh, poking around in areas where they probably shouldn't have been, possibly because the police chief and the police service weren't doing their jobs. In Canada, we have no effective oversight of policing on the operational side. So when the police don't do their jobs properly, there is nothing that anybody can do about it. That's a problem. But what I see here happening uh, in the inquiry is the government making a very effective case that the police services at three levels were so incompetent that they had to act with the Emergencies Act, and that alone will be their justification when they close their argument. I want to jump to another issue, and Matt Gurney, you're the perfect person to offer some insight on this, and that would be... Weekend number one for Elon Musk owning Twitter, and he basically gave his seal of approval to a conspiracy theory that is on a level with, you know, like Pizzagate and other insane QAnon ideas. In this case, it's the attack inside of Nancy Pelosi's house wasn't actually a random assassination attempt. It was a love twist gone wrong. And you probably came across all kinds of comments this weekend, some of them really vile. Uh, but the fact that you know, Elon Musk was on board for this, doesn't bode well for the future of Twitter. No, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I saw what I thought was a really um, intelligent um, tweet like about this last night. It was from an American journalist. I, I don't know the guy, but I saw the tweet and he just said, I don't think Elon Musk buying Twitter by itself is going to ruin Twitter. I'm not going to delete my account, take my ball and go home. But I am starting to think that an Elon Musk run Twitter might become such a dysfunctional place that six months from now I might choose to quit. And I think my mind is sort of in the same place. I'm not planning on having any big showy and dramatic I quit Twitter moment. But if this place becomes even more unbearable, I, I'm not planning to stick around. And, you know, the other the story that joins with this, John, is the one where there's apparently some talk about Musk uh, charging everyone yeah. uh, who has a blue check to keep it. And I, I thought the reaction to that was very interesting because a lot of, like the the overwhelming reaction so far among my fellow blue checks seems to have been oh they would never they would never pay a penny there's no value and I'm actually not sure about that and what I would just ask anyone who uses Twitter and I'm asking is a very sincere question you're using it for a reason. You're using it because it gets you some value, or at least you perceive that it does. Do you expect that for free? And I, I don't know if I would pay to keep uh, Twitter privileges. I honestly don't. But I do know that I get actual tangible value from using the platform. And to date, I haven't had a p uh, to pay a p penny for it here. I know this is a very heated argument right now, but I actually find it a pretty interesting business one. All of us get to now decide what value, if any, we assign to the time we spend tweeting. It's funny because but I do, do not have a blue check and that's because at the time I applied for it they had suspended the awarding of blue checks and I still don't, unless somebody out there is impersonating me, I still don't see the value, Mark. Well, I was just going to say, Matt wouldn't make that argument about his own medium. I mean, the users of Twitter, whether they have a blue check or not, are providing content to Twitter, which Twitter then monetizes. Twitter makes money by people showing up on, on Twitter and having conversations. The blue check, if anything, adds value to Twitter by being able to know, oh, this is actually the John Moore who's on the radio because somebody's checked it out. That's what the verified check is supposed to mean. I'm not sure that 
it always does. But that just adds credibility and therefore value to Twitter and makes it more appealing to advertisers. So, you know, I would yeah, spin that around, Matt, and say, are you going to yeah. pay... Uh, are you going to are you going to pay to contribute to a media, mm. you know, newspaper? No, well, here, Mark, writers don't pay newspapers. Here's the thing, maybe, and let me tell you why, because you're making a very logical argument that I actually and 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 all others like us are providing value. I agree with that argument. The problem is if Elon Musk doesn't agree with that argument, you and I are up the creek. Like it, it, yeah, it's up to Twitter so to define the value right. of the services we're providing it. Okay, uh, speaking of conspiracy theories, uh, Karima said, what do you make of the fact that school boards in Ontario are now having to send memos to parents to tell them that it's not true that they're putting uh, kitty litter in the bathroom for children who identify as cats? So I feel like I've watched this in slow motion roll out um, among the so-called freedom movement um, with different groups in different localities having the same rumor. Um, so I, I'm not entirely surprised that schools are now having to respond to it. I can't imagine constantly getting that inquiry. Um, I, I do think that it is probably disguising, um, you know, the, the inc like people asking itself is, is likely pushback to gender identity questions of what is going on you know have things gone too far i think back to the situation at oakville trafalgar high school um you know and, and so it, it uh, goes to show how quickly um things can spread and just nonsensical things because uh, that's not even really what a furry is. Um, and, and, and we <laughs> so don't have to get into that here. <laughs> Listen, we're out of racetrack here, but thank you all. Matt Gurney, Karima Sad, Mark Tui. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.